Now let's take our copies of God's Holy Word and turn together to the sixth chapter of the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we will begin reading together at the twelfth verse to the end of the chapter. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. Really enjoy hearing those pages turn. Shall we pray? Almighty God and our Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you will enable this this feeble preacher to know the power of your Spirit in the proclamation of the Word of the living God, that his concern and ours might only be to hear Christ preach his Word to us down deep within our hearts and souls and consciences and that we, your people, may be conformed to the image of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those among us today who are strangers to grace, who are lost and do not know the Lord Jesus, we pray that the Spirit of God would savingly bring about that saving change, regeneration and conversion that only the Spirit of God can produce. Hear our prayer, we ask it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning with verse 12. This is the word of God. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both of them, and both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. People of God, we live in dangerous times, in times of serious moral decline in our culture. We are about to go over the moral cliff. Perhaps we already have. Nothing embarrasses us. Television is shameless. And the thing that disturbs me most is that the church is in decline in doctrine, worship, and in morals, often in lockstep with the culture. The church faced such immorality in the first century A.D. This is not the first time that the God's people have faced this. As a matter of fact, in the preceding chapter, chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, Paul pleads for church discipline because they had failed, perhaps refused, to deal with sexual sin in the midst of the congregation. The church then was influenced by culture, especially in Corinth, and the church today is influenced by culture. Corinth was known for the temple of Aphrodite. Ritual prostitutes were associated with the temple. 
to Corinthianize was a word that was used throughout the ancient world to mean lewd behavior. A Corinthian girl was a girl of loose living. Paul had to deal with these influences in the church in Corinth. Now, as he's dealing with those influences, he's dealing with an error, an error in the Corinthian church, and the error was simply this, the idea that matter doesn't matter. That's why when we come to chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, we find the Apostle Paul dealing with the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and some who were denying the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. The body, they said, was not important. Hence, there was fertile ground for sexual immorality. We're free in the Lord. We can do as we please. It's not going to hurt anything. We're Christians. And Paul cites slogans frequently throughout 1 Corinthians of these antinomians, those who were denying the place of the law in the Christian life and obedience to God's commands. And we see one of those slogans here in verse 12. You'll notice it's in quotes, all things are lawful for me. Now, the Apostle Paul is quoting his antagonists. And that slogan is very dangerous in the wrong hands. Murder, idolatry, all things are lawful for me? Obviously not. It's not correct as an all-inclusive statement. The Apostle Paul says, I will not be enslaved by anything. And so we should ask ourselves questions. Do my choices glorify God? Are my choices in accord with the Word of God? Are they for the good of others? Do they show love to my neighbor? Do they grow me in grace? Do my plans protect the reputation of the church? Do my actions and choices promote mission? Is what I want to do constructive and edifying? Those are the sorts of questions that should be asked. And so Paul insists on a Christian view of the body. It is not true that the spirit only is important and we can act as we please and all will be well. And although Paul has a specific issue in mind probably the temple prostitutes from the temple of Aphrodite, the principles are broadly applicable. After all, he says, flee immorality in this passage, and his principles are principles that are applicable to the subject and theme of sexual purity. Now, pastors, I think, can err in addressing this subject in a couple of ways. First of all, there are some pastors who never deal with it in the pulpit at all. I think that's an error. There are others, and this I think is the, the tendency now, who deal with these things in a very immodest way. I think that's wrong also. But I was thinking about this last night in particular as I was speaking to one of the moms of our congregation about today's sermon. I think it's extremely important that our children, even our smallest children, grow up hearing their pastor address these themes from the pulpit. Even if they don't understand all of these things right now, and you're helping them to grow and understand, they need to hear their pastor talk about sexuality from the pulpit. And I hope that, particular, that in particular, fathers and mothers will really take note of the teaching of Scripture and some of the applications that we find here today. Under cultural influences, we can view as normal what the Bible says is sinful, And we can become very tolerant and even encourage in our children what is contrary to the Word of God. So let's go to the text. The first thing we see about human sexuality is that sex is not just biological. Sex is not just biological. Verse 13, 
Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. In other words, Christ has a purpose for your body, Christian. And he cites another slogan. You saw it in quotes here, another slogan of the antinomians. Food doesn't raise a moral issue, they're saying, so why should sex? Well, food does raise moral issues, but that's a question for another time. But the point is that sex influences your whole person in a way that food does not. That's why he says in verse 18, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. What he's saying there is that Sex is so united to who we are as our persons and to the worship of the living God and living before Him that this, this sin has peculiarly, peculiarly difficult, difficult and ongoing application to the Christian life. God's purpose for the body does not include sexual union outside marriage. One man, one woman, God's Word says clearly, In marriage, sex is a gift. Outside, it has no place whatsoever. And so a young person can go off to college and thinks that he or she can can hook up multiple times, and it will not matter. Well, it does matter. Guilt, emptiness, loneliness, confusion, result. Because that is not the way God intended it to be. Sex is not just biology. So I ask, is there anyone here immediately who sees that this is what God's Word says and you need to repent and you need to turn because you've swallowed the lie of our culture? The first thing Paul says, sex is not just biological. Get that into your heads. Second thing, God has a future for the Christian's body. God has a future for the Christian's body. Verse 14, look at it. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Well, what's the connection? God raised Christ. You are in union with Christ and He will raise your body on the last day. When your body is placed in the grave, your body is in union with Christ as a believer. The point is, matter matters. The measure of God's commitment to the body is incarnation, atonement, and resurrection. Christianity is a very earthy faith. Christ came in a body. He lived in a body. He suffered on the cross in a body. His body was entombed. His body rose from the dead. He bodily intercedes for us, and in His body He will come again. And so Paul is very concrete. Fornication is not a topic of theoretical discussion. The gospel is vitally concerned with the bodies in which we live and breathe and sweat and serve the Lord and our fellow man. And so in verses 14 and 15, let's read 14 again and 15 with it. God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by His power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Paul then is saying what is true of Jesus' body will be true of the believer's body. You will be raised and glorified after the pattern of Jesus' own resurrection. The body is not intended then for sexual immorality. Your body is special because of your union with Jesus. Now we confess every week 
I believe the third day He rose again from the dead. I believe the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. We use the Apostles' Creed every week, so work it out. What does this mean for you? All of life for us Christians flows from this commitment. In Romans 8.23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The designer and redeemer of the body has the right to tell you and to tell me how we are to use our bodies. Now, the Bible allows no devaluation of sex. Sex is a great gift of God and a blessing in marriage, but sex is not a panacea for emptiness, but only finds its place when we find ourselves fulfilled in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. God made sex, and it is good. Please teach your children this. God made sex. It's from Him. It comes from His hand. It is good. It's our hearts that are sinful. So please teach your children sex is good, but everywhere the presupposition underlying sexual purity is fidelity to the Lord. The resurrection underscores that our bodies in union with Christ are under orders. And that leads us to the third thing we see that just works this out a little more fully. The third thing is the Christian's body is in union with Christ. Let's read verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. It's this great theme of union with Christ. Now, you remember when the Apostle Paul, before he was the Apostle, when he was lost and he was a persecutor of the church, met the risen Christ on the Damascus Road, that when he met the Lord Jesus, the Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Now, he was persecuting the church, but Christ said, you're persecuting me. Why? Because of the union between Christ and his people. To persecute Christ's people was to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the purpose of verse uh, 16 that we just read when he speaks of union with a prostitute. It's a sad thing. Paul uses the same expressions for union with Christ and for the union of a man with a prostitute. Why? I'll tell you why. Because more happens when you have sex than just bodies coming together. Christians are not materialists. The whole you is involved, body, mind, heart soul, and will. You cannot expect to have sex outside of marriage and retain a clean, sensitive, malleable conscience. You cannot expect to have sex outside of marriage and maintain sensitivity to the things of God. Fornication is a sin against Christ. It is a sin against our neighbor, a wrong desire for the control of our neighbor, and it is against your own body and soul. Fornication is greed. It is a desire to wrongfully possess and to covet. And fornication is always contrary to love. Paul is saying there is no conceivable justification for fornication since you are united to Christ. And so, union with Christ determines our sexual ethics as Christians. Why not fornicate? Why not adulterate? Why not homosexuality? Why not sex with animals? The answer is oneness with Christ. 
Therefore, his directions determine sexual ethics. Now, the world knows nothing of this. The world could care less about this. The world knows nothing of Christ. The world certainly is not controlled by a concern of union with Christ and the resurrection. But you must be people of God. This is your calling to understand these things and to apply these things to life. Union with Christ works two ways. I am united with Christ, and Christ is united to me. How can we bring Christ's name into such a sordid relationship? That's what Paul is asking. Now that leads us to the fourth principle that we find in this passage. The Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Christian's body is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? In verse 20, he goes on to say, You are not your own, you are bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. We'll say more about that one in a moment. Now back in chapter 3 of this book, in verses 16 and 17, He speaks to the church, to the congregation, and he says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. So he speaks to the whole congregation, and he says, You are the temple, indwelt by the Spirit of God. He comes to this chapter, chapter 6, and he says, You individually are indwelt by the Spirit, so that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It's remarkable. What is true of the church is true of you. The Old Testament temple was the place of God's special presence. Here, your body, singular, is indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Now remember, what was right down the street and around the corner from the church in Corinth? It was the temple of Aphrodite with all of its sexual immorality. Paul is contrasting you with that. By grace, he is saying, you don't live in that sinkhole of demons anymore. God himself indwells you. Is there anyone here, then I ask, who needs to believe and repent of how you are treating your body in which the Holy Spirit dwells? I mean specifically in this sexual arena. Now that leads us to the fifth point. The Lord owns our bodies. The Lord owns our bodies. Let's read verses 19 and 20 again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Now the apostle may be contrasting payment of money to a prostitute with payment of Christ for your sins. And he's saying there's a total contrast, absolute contrast. The service required for the one was Aphrodite worship, but you have been bought with a price. You have been bought at the high cost of Christ's shed blood. And the service required is the glorification of God. Since the payment is completely contrasted, the lifestyles must be completely contrasted. What's the price? Christ's own shed blood. What does this mean? The Lord Jesus owns you and me, Christian. He owns you, lock, stock, and barrel. Can we play with an accursed sin that nailed our Savior to the cross? Mr. Spurgeon somewhere said, Sin is the dagger which stabbed the Savior's heart, and henceforth it must be the abomination of every man who has been redeemed by the atoning sacrifice. Now that's what we want in our hearts, to love what God loves 
and to hate what God hates. Because you don't belong to yourself. You belong to Jesus. Paul's counsel then to God's people in verse 18, look at it. Verse 18 of chapter 6, flee from sexual immorality. Get out of there. Flee it. Don't think that you can play with it. Don't think that you can get near it and not get hurt. Don't think that you can sink your mind into the junk of this world and it's not going to affect you. Flee. Get away from it. Get out of there. In chapter 10, in verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. If you'll turn to 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians, chapter 4, here's what the apostle says in verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, please turn there, verses 3 through 8. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives His Holy Spirit to you. And so the call is, you belong to Christ, Bow down before the Lord, do nothing He forbids because He owns you, and positively glorify Him in your body. Now, here are the principles that we've seen thus far in the text. Sex is not just biological. God has a future for the Christian's body. The Christian's body is in union with Christ. The Christian's body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Christ owns our bodies by the purchase of blood, and therefore, sexual ethics must be determined by these truths. I believe in the resurrection of the body, we say every week, and the future of the Christian determines our way of living now. As a matter of fact, the incarnation of our Lord, His earthly incarnate ministry, His bodily death on the cross, His resurrection and ascension, His intercession, His coming again, all in the body, the return of Jesus, these things determine your sexual ethics. Now, do you get that? That's not just a rhetorical question. Do you see it? Is that clear in the passage to you? All right, the sixth thing we want to do is to work out some applications. Now, some of these are just commonsensical I just want to jumpstart you for application to your lives and your homes. I actually want to give a series of warnings as well as instruction. So let's do this. First, fathers and mothers, do not wait until your children are teens before you teach them in age-appropriate ways about sex. You are the educators of your children. For example... 
teach little girls what modesty is. If you wait until they're 13 years old, the battle's lost. Teach little boys to respect girls and, to, and, and correct the little boy when he's not respectful of little girls or of women. Have your little boys always respect mother and start very young teaching the differences between men and women. Men model godly headship in the home. Ladies, godly submission, model joyful marriage. Popular media are not educators. They are in large measure the destroyers of true education. Now, if you are a widow or a single, single mom with children, remember the older women are to teach the younger one. Go to these older, more mature women who have been through it. Older women, look for some of these younger women who need your help. And also you have the elders to help and to assist you. Now, you can't guarantee the outcome. You can rear a child in all of the right ways, teaching the truth. That's the, the change of the heart is in the hands of the Lord, but this you can know. It is very rare indeed that we parents do not rear our children biblically, set aside biblical standards, and that they're going to grow up and follow the Lord. So fathers and mothers, don't wait, but teach it now. Secondly, fathers, help moms to see the issues and, to, and, and lead them. I'm sure this can go the other way around as well, but I'm addressing fathers. Do not leave it all to the mothers. It is possible for a mother actually to fail to see the dangers in relationships of their sons and daughters with someone of one of the opposite sex. I remember seeing that very, very clearly when I was a boy uh, with uh, a mom in the neighborhood. Uh, she just encouraged things that were very misleading to, um, to her child. So use common sense. For example, do not allow boys and girls behind closed doors together. Just use your heads. Start it young, and then you will not have to teach it later. Teach them respect now so that they will show respect later. Another application. I want to offer some warnings about dating. I'm surely no expert on this, but dating certainly is for the potential of marriage. And many youths think that dating becomes an excuse to have sexual conduct, con contact. <clears throat> Here's the bottom line, young person and parents. Do not act like you're married if you're not married. Let me say it again. Do not act like you're married if you're not married. I mean, not only physically, but emotionally. You don't need that kind of attachment. The purpose of sex is to bless and to cement marriage and to procreate. The Bible defines the context for marriage and for sexuality. Sexual activity is between one man and one woman in marriage, period. But our youths go through what must feel for many of them like multiple mini divorces. Because over and over again, they have attachments, they break up, they have attachments, they break up, they have attachments, they break up, and we consider that normal now. And they're allowed to enter into relationships for which they're not ready, and then they're confused when marriage does happen. They don't know how to have a relationship in marriage because they've not learned that it all begins with respectful friendship. 
Youths hardly in their teens are pairing off and sometimes encouraged to do so by moms, by dads. So have frank discussions with your children. Young men and young ladies should interact in groups and should interact with the family. But they don't like it. Well, who's the parent? That's your job. It's not to ask what they like. It's to honor the Lord and to do for them what they need. Let me give you another warning. I want to warn against pornography. Pornography rewires the brain. And pornography absolutely consumes its victims. And it once was the case that a minister would speak to a group of men about this and could leave the ladies out. That's not true anymore. Because increasingly, I mean in large numbers, women are viewing pornography and fantasizing. So if that's you, believe and repent now. Consume the word and the sacrament. Fight the battle. 1 Corinthians 10.13. You say it's just impossible. I'm so deep into it. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says differently if you're a believer. 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overcome you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. When you've looked once at porn, it becomes easier to look the next time, and then easier to look the next time, and easier to look the next time. And over time, it has you. And worst of all, you're developing a habit of resisting God and defiling your conscience before the Lord. You know James 1, 14 and 15? Listen, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Proverbs six twenty seven: Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Young man, to gaze at pornography makes women mere objects. That's wrong. Does this honor God's revelation in which he has said we are God's image bearers? Does that honor God's revelation that speaks of redemption through the blood of Christ, of our bodies? Let me ask, would you want that for your sister? Let me ask you. When you're grown up and you have daughters, you want that for your daughter? Porn causes you to forget reality and to live in a fantasy world. Let me stress, it is not real. These airbrush pictures, they're just not real. They are not real. That woman doesn't care a thing about you in that photograph. Porn will hinder your ability to have a real satisfying relationship with a wife when you grow up and get married. And all of this is true also of a woman who may be viewing pornography. Let's go on. Heed the warnings of God's word. So turn back to the book of Proverbs. 
And I wish we had time to read chapter 5, but I'm going to ask you to go home and read the fifth chapter of the book of Proverbs. But let's begin by looking at a few verses in chapter 2 of Proverbs. The writer begins, Solomon begins, My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, and then he speaks of the wise words that the son is to hear. And then in chapter 2, verses 16 through 19, we read, So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God, for her house sinks down to death and her paths to, be depart- to, to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. Now, if we could reread chapter 5, but go on to chapter 6 of Proverbs. Look at verses 32 and 33. What it says about adultery just apply to all sexual sin. Proverbs 6, 32, 33. He who commits adultery lacks sense. You hear that? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. Wounds and dishonor will he get, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Now let me say what I think is the biggest issue. The biggest issue is we really need to get this into our heads, Christians. The biggest issue is that Christians are called to be different. Let's look at a couple of passages. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter chapter 2. Now this is where he speaks of us and says we're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that you should proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then he uses this passage that was read from Hosea. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but you now have received mercy. Okay, you've received mercy. How then should we live? Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war, wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's happening with the church in our country today is that the world cannot tell any difference between the way those who profess faith in Christ live. I don't mean everybody. I'm generalizing. But I think as a generalization, it's true. Now turn to Romans 12. Again, Christians are called to live differently. Romans 12, the first two verses. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. That's how you present your bodies. 
Living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, and your mind needs to be constantly transformed by the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Roland Baton in his church history in his first volume says something like this. I'm paraphrasing. The church accommodates the culture seeking to win converts. And then the gospel is couched in images intelligible to the heathen, and the result is always the perversion of Christianity. The whole point is, the church has always had to struggle with this idea that we have to get on the same level with unbelievers in order to win them, and that we give in to the world in the way in which we think and act and worship. Let me give you some examples now. For example, the world's ideal for your daughters is that they look sexually desirable. And don't mistake me, I'm not saying that our young ladies shouldn't be attractive. I'm not suggesting they should wear gunny sacks or anything like that. It's not what I mean. I'm talking about the way in which the world paints a woman where she just kind of exudes this, this hypersexuality. That's what the world wants for your daughters. A recent article written by a woman says this, Advertising and media feed off each other, generating a proliferation of images that are sexually suggestive or blatantly pornographic. These ads, music videos, video games, television shows, internet sites, and teen fiction then become guidelines for acceptable teenage social behavior. Sexual imagery is such a normal part of teens' daily lives that regardless of family pressures, disapproving peers, or religious taboos, very young girls are influenced into dressing provocatively, acting sexy, and becoming sexually active. Then, she gives a litany of examples of things written on girls' clothing that they buy in stores. Some of them do. I'm not reading those. It would not be edifying, but I am going to read the result. Listen, this woman says, The current brand identity for girls is clear. I am something to be consumed. That's what the world wants for your daughter. She buys into that, this hypersexualized image that says to people around her, young guys around her, I'm here to be consumed. And the devil undoubtedly is laughing a sar- with sardonic glee to see our youth influenced in this way. I'll give you another example. The world teaches a woman's highest eth- ethical ideal is that no one teach her, no one dare question that she does not have reproductive rights over her own body, including abortion. Is that God's goal? Christians believe that? Is that what God teaches in His Word? My friends, that's a war against women. The media and schools of our nation's culture teach that it has the right to redefine marriage. So our little boys and little girls are going to grow up hearing from their teachers that it's okay for little boys to grow up and marry men and little girls to grow up and marry women, and it's utter confusion. Is that what God's Word teaches? Our government 
is for legalizing sodomy. I've never heard anybody say that before. But that's what it is. That's the great battle for us. If culture changes, we must not change. Ever. The media send messages and we become desensitized. Let me give you an example. An ad to re-elect the president associated voting with having premarital sex for the first time. Now, I'm not a television watcher. Never had cable, ever. Don't watch television. You know, I seem to know what's going on in culture. And I never watch those things. It doesn't help my sanctification. But I heard about it, I read about it, and I went to Bill Campbell's office and said, you know about that? We looked it up and we watched it online. You can find it online. An ad to re-elect the president associated voting with having premarital sex for the first time. No subtlety. I was a girl, now I am a woman, she says. Implication, to be a woman means to have sex out of marriage. And the fathers of America were not up in arms. The fact that an ad could appeal to profligacy to re-elect a president is very telling about where our culture is. Well, the ad was wicked, and that's our culture, but my point is it's not the church. So we are faced in our culture today with the best of opportunities for the church to become stark and distinct from the world. What is happening in our country morally is what has been happening in Europe for decades. And Europe is a moral mess. And the churches are empty. So the clearest application to fathers, mothers, and church leaders is simply this. Be very deliberate to teach counterculturally and to live counterculturally. So you ask the question, for how long must we Christians swim against the tide? For how long must we swim upstream? Well, until Christ comes again. That's the call of the church. So may this be a clarion call to the church to be distinct for Christ's sake. Oh, I say to you and to me, Christ says to us this morning, be distinct, Christian, be distinct. Don't you listen to that drivel that comes through the media. Don't be influenced by it. Don't you live that way. You can't have Christ in that. Now maybe, maybe someone here is angry or offended. Why? This is clearly the teaching of God's Word and sound application of it. Perhaps someone is feeling dirty and you need cleansing. You're under conviction of sin, and well, you should be. Because your heart prefers, even craves, what your conscience condemns. You're a slave. What the world calls freedom and celebrates as freedom, God's Word calls slavery to sin. 2 Peter 2.19, For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. Free will? No way. Free will is a slave. Your will is bound in sin by nature. And you need someone to come and break you free. God is holy and His perfections demand that He is the righteous enemy and punisher of sin. And you bring, you bring an inestimable gift into marriage when you bring virginity into marriage. But maybe you cannot. 
and you've chosen your own way and you've not lived after God's command in this matter, well, let me say to you, so had the Christians, many of them in the church in Corinth. Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, look there, really important to see. Above the verses that we just read, beginning in verse 9, listen to what Paul says. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. There's a long list here. Notice that a number of the issues here relate to this question of sexual immorality. Now look, look at verse 11. And such were some of you. He doesn't say you are. He says you were. Such were some of you. You're not that way anymore. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So here is the good news, that we confess that we believe in the forgiveness of sins. And some of the greatest Christian theologians, leaders, and pastors have come from sexually impure backgrounds, notable among them Augustine, the great Augustine. Why, this very room has many who have been sexually impure. As a matter of fact, all of us have. Who can say hasn't? In one way or another, in the mind, if not in the body. And the Lord has saved us from our sins. Thank God. So look away from yourself to God's omnipotent grace because He can save you and He can deliver you. Come as you are. Do not try to clean yourself up. It never works. His blood imperial can make you clean and make you a prince or a princess of God. Do not go on toward eternity as you are. Come to Jesus, none but Jesus, none but Jesus can do poor sinners good. Trust in Christ and take Him at His word. I, even I, am He that blotteth out thy transgressions and will not remember thy sins. But is it just like that, someone says? The hymn writer was right. The moment a sinner believes and trusts in his crucified God, a pardon at once he receives. Redemption is full through his blood. Is it just like that? Yes, it is just like that. That's the gospel. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.